Hello and welcome back to the Sunday Podcast, presented by sportsshoes.com. I'm Oli Lam. And I'm Matt Seddon. Every Sunday we get together with a guest from the distance running world. Giving you an insight into the lives and training of some of the UK's best athletes and coaches. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast streaming services. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sunday Podcast, where we post about our past and present guests, host giveaways and much more. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi guys, welcome back. Season two is finally here, brought to you by Sports Shoes. Um, it's great to be back. How you doing, Matt? You all good? All good, man. Enjoyed a little break, but really enjoyed the podcast that we just did. Yeah, for sure. So guys, this week we spoke to um, Kahal Dennehy. Uh, he's an Irish sports journalist, specialising in athletics, in distance running. Guy's just been out in Kenya, um, spending some time with, with Kipchoge. I'm sure you guys have seen on Twitter his thread. It's really, really good. If not, make sure you go check that out as well. But he basically talks through what the team's like out there, coached by Patrick Sang, um, and pretty much um, what they go through on a day-to-day basis. So interesting to hear that insight. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as soon as we read his thread, I was like, we need to get this guy on the podcast. We need to talk to him because, obviously, words can only say so much and a conversation is better, in my opinion. So we we do go in depth and talk a lot about basically that Kipchoge camp and what it was like to be basically Kahal was living in the camp for three or four days um, out in Kenya and interviewing athletes, Patrick Sang, Kipchoge, like you said. And so he just talks, you know, a lot about the ethos, you know, what makes Kipchoge so good, the training he does. Like you said, mate, it's fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Like he talks us through long run they went on, the track sessions, um, also Faith Kipiego and Jeffrey Kamora out there. So it's not just Kipchoge, um, but we do focus a bit on, a bit on him because look, he, he's a superstar in athletics. So hope you enjoy this week's pod. Also, in terms of athletics, we've got what the biggest domestic cross country race of them all, Liverpool. It's next weekend, um, so we're planning on bringing you guys like a lot of content around that. We'll keep it a bit bit quiet of what we're doing for now, but make sure you you stay tuned for that as well. Um, on the sports shoe side of things, we have got a discount code for you guys, but we're not going to make it too easy for you. Make sure you listen out somewhere in the pod. We'll, we'll include a little discount code that you can use to get um, 10% off all your shoes or your gear on sportsshoes.com. Enjoy, guys. Right, Kahal, um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, do you mind just taking a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners and, and talk about what you do in the world of running? Sure. Um, so I used to be an athlete, um, running like, well, not, not, not at a brilliant level. Got up to the European cross country a few times, finished down the field in the middle of nowhere and that, um, and then got too many injuries in my 20s, ended up retiring, kind of having to stop running around 25, 26, got into journalism. And ever since I've been a freelance sports journalist and uh, I write for, I do a lot, probably most of my work is for the Irish newspapers. Um, and then I do a bit of work for Runners World in the US. And then I do work for World Athletics as well. Um, so they're, they're the kind of main ones, but yeah, I'm kind of a, a running obsessive, I would say. So I tend to get around a good, especially a distance running obsessive. So I get around a good few of the, main hotspots I suppose for distance running and the major marathons and major championships internationally like so yeah following following my little dream anyway so for now <laughs> you mate yeah absolutely I mean I've followed you on Twitter for years you probably don't even know but you know you you are the eyes and ears um to most of in in the running world you do a great job at covering it um 
And like, yeah, one of the reasons we got you on the podcast was obviously the latest article you did. Um, you went out and visited Kipchoge. Was it published in the Irish Examiner? Was it? Yeah. It was, it was everywhere, um, to be honest with you. But yeah, we, we just want to talk about that trip a little bit to start. And firstly, how did it come about? Um, and were you surprised the access you, you got with Kipchoge when you were out there? Yeah, it came about from, so once a year, because they, they, his management said basically that since he broke the world record in was that 2018, he broke it in Berlin, basically his media demands have gone absolutely crazy. You know, his level of fame was through the roof and obviously the whole Breaking 2 project, Ineos project, all accelerated that further. Um, so they kind of, they have so many media demands that they kind of restrict it now to basically so many people looking to come out to Captagall and visit his camp and film something, things like that, that they restrict it now to like one week a year. And wow. in that week, they obviously even restrict it within that as well, whereby they invite a certain number of international journalists uh, to along to the camp. And they've done that the last few years. So I know Ben Bloom and the Telegraph was out there on one of those media kind of trips a couple of years ago, or I think last year, no, 2019, I think he went out. Um, so this year, Coming up to that, probably only a few weeks before, I didn't, I'd heard, they, they'd said something to me before Tokyo, but then, yeah, two weeks before it was happening, they said, do you want to come out? Um, and then it was like, kind of going back and forth a bit about, well, it was like, because I'm a freelancer, you'd have to pay your own way out there. Like, so I kind of talked to a few of the people I write for, like Runners World and uh, the Irish newspapers and sort of said, look, can I, can I get a bit of help or, you know, in terms of paying the flight and things like that? And I kind of already they, they gave me enough commitment for stories like um about various athletes because obviously it's not just Kipchoge out there there's oh. Jeffrey Camorwar and Faith Kipiegon are in the camp as well so I kind of got a commitment enough to do enough stories that it made kind of financial sense as a freelancer to take the trip and I kind of once I knew I could write I covered the costs obviously it's a it's a once in a lifetime thing as a kind of a running fan as a running journalist to um get to experience that and so that's how it came about it was uh there was there was not many others out there it was there were three spanish journalists from some of the spanish newspapers and there was a guy like from world athletics as well and then ben from the us who was working with a watch company he was doing some stuff for them so basically there were six of us out there for the three days we visited the camp we were kind of in kenya i was in kenya for about a week and uh, the actual camp was a three-day thing where it was arrived on a Monday on the Tuesday morning we went up watched their track session um watched their came back in the afternoon interviewed some athletes watched an afternoon run on the Wednesday I think it was yeah we went there in the morning did some exercises did the strength and conditioning session with the group which was hilarious given the abilities of the different journalists and then on the Thursday um we joined them for the long run in the in the in basically a pickup truck. Like so we're sitting beside Patrick Sang as we were following them doing a 30k run. And then they made us tea and stuff and sit around for a few chats. And then that was basically the end of it then. So yeah, it was a very, very cool experience all around. Right. Absolutely. I mean that's something which amazes me about Kipchoge is the level he's he's still able to deliver given such hype and such media demands. But I didn't realize that it was only limited to sort of like once a week. And then obviously when he goes and does a major marathon, he does a little bit there. But so it's interesting to see that they kind of, you know, had to control it. Yeah, I think they, they probably do deal with other requests on demand. But in terms of people actually visiting, like, you know, I'm sure he does a lot of and I've interviewed him a few times myself over the phone yeah. in the last few years. But uh, 
in terms of people actually going out and visiting the camp, they're restricted to one week because they just said it's it's a lot of a distraction for the athletes. And, you know, it's kind of if, if they said yes to everyone, they would have probably someone there most weeks of the year. And the camp is quite closed off in terms of like, well, there's a gate. It's not, it's not really closed off. Anyone can kind of just walk up, but it's not really signposted on the road. And they did say yeah. when they were there, like that the public interest is so high that, you know, he can't live a normal life, Kipchoge. Like, in the, I think the day before we were there, there was two Indian guys who'd come up to the gate um, and somehow found where it was. And there were obviously huge running fans and they had Kipchoge posters and they asked him to sign them. And being the nice guy he was, he came out and did it. Like, but they said that happens all the time now, like that people, maybe it's Kenyans, maybe it's non-Kenyans, that they're just running fans and they want to find where Kipchoge is and get him to sign something for them. And all. So, yeah, it's uh, you can understand why they kind of became more garden but yeah I was very very lucky to get the chance to kind of break through the walls and just see the whole setup and once we were there they said like you know if you could obviously respect the athlete's privacy and not wander into their bedroom area and stuff but apart from that like in terms of the living room the kitchen the I call it a gym but it's not really a gym that they have there it's more a room with like one treadmill in it and a one exercise bike um you know we're allowed to wander around as we want and kind of just check out the whole scene I suppose like and obviously we're allowed, we're allowed to go for a run with Kipchoge as well a 10k run which was fun <laughs> is it like is it surprising kind of how open they are because I guess if you try to do that with I don't know if anyone's really at Kipchoge's level but someone of a similar level in the US like I guess, I guess you've got no chance really yeah well I think that's the beautiful thing about running is that you know, we were saying that a lot that obviously you'd never get a chance to get near Messi or Ronaldo or Roger Federer or whatever, but in running you, I think even the stars are a lot more accessible. And I think even in the US, a lot of the stars are, well, I know the, the professional groups in the US, it, it wouldn't be as easy to go out and do that for sure. But I think generally I always find most stars in athletics are quite quite reasonable and quite down to earth and you know like as i remember like paula radcliffe used to train from the city i'm from because her physio jared hartman is from limerick where i'm from and like just everyone would always know like that paula would always be out training where we'd all be training and everyone used to be able to talk to her and if you're fast enough you could join in with a run on a run with her and things like that like when she was a megastar and i think most people are kind of quite accommodating in the sport but yeah i think it was it was it was strange to see someone that's so famous kind of still be so kind of open and to be able to get that time and I suppose just kind of weird it's a bit a little bit surreal I suppose just to be sitting around in the garden drinking tea with Kajogi and stuff like and talking about whatever we're talking about but uh yeah he I suppose he is quite closed off in a sense in terms of he's the kind of personality where you know if he doesn't know you he's not going to say much to you but he's perfectly polite and nice like he'd always talk to you and stuff if you talk to him and stuff but like he's not going to be he's not that personality he's going to be like coming up into the middle of the group going right where are you all from what do you do and all this yeah. he's that kind of quieter type but like you see him when he's sitting around with Cam War or the other training partners like he is kind of having a laugh in the group but he kind of it, it, as the people there would say to me who know him well they say like you know it does it does take a bit of getting to know Kipchoge before he'll kind of let that guard down with you. You you obviously stayed with them for a little while and there's incredible athletes there isn't it like you said Cam War there's there must be about 30 or 40 guys sub 2-5 or whatever in the marathon what what stood out for you you know the difference between him and the others? 
if any uh, i think the discipline with him is pretty obsessive like and it's kind of it's it's kind of crazy almost the level of discipline i know i remember talking to one athlete who used to be in the group and they said like that they were training for a marathon and uh, i think they got a stress fracture or something so the marathon was cancelled and they were had to rest for two months and then they wanted to go home because they had like their families somewhere else and stuff. And Kipchoge was basically giving out to them saying like, no, you can't, you can't leave. You have to stay here until the end of the cycle. And the athlete was like, geez, you know, I've like, I'm, 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 I'm a stress fracture. I can't train for two months. Like, and he was like, no, we have to set a good example for the young athletes to stay in camp and stuff. And you know, that sort of stuff you're like, geez, this, this guy is obsessive about the discipline and obsessive about the group mentality. Um, so I think, and even talking to Kipchoge's management, you know, they'd readily say to you like that. Kenanisa, they obviously manage Bekele as well, and they say Bekele is a far more physically talented athlete than Kipchoge, but he doesn't have the discipline. And they just say Kipchoge is on another level with his discipline. You know, he is, it's just crazy. Like he has, like they were saying to me about how he, he would have in the off season break, like pizza and chips or something like that. But they were like, as soon as he starts training, it's just back to, you know, the ugali and the vegetables and chapati and Kenyan tea is the basic diet and he, he wouldn't touch pizza or anything like that. Like, so it's, um, and I think, you know, in, in modern sport as well, you probably, obviously, people who study nutrition always realize like, you know, it's not as if a slice of pizza is going to make a blind bit of difference to give Jogi's marathon in reality, but it's just the mentality whereby he takes once he gets into camp for those four months that there's literally nothing he'll do that's not like helpful, I suppose, to his to his marathon end result like and it's just it's such a i suppose the thing that stood out with him i suppose there wasn't too much that stood out and again it wasn't enough time to truly understand um how he's different to the others but i think i mean he's definitely physically talented on a completely different level to everyone else and you know the discipline and all the self-help talk and all that sort of stuff mindfulness there's no doubt that probably does help but like there's also no denying he won the world championships in 2003 when he was still a teenager however old he was then like um and someone was telling me that when he he took like a month off after olympics did basically nothing was just hanging around at home visiting family meeting friends things like that then he started back doing a little bit of running and then he came back into the camp and he says literally only a couple of weeks of running after taking a month off and he joined in a long run and you're talking athletes who are, you know, ready to roll for like Amsterdam, New York, wherever they were running marathons in the last few weeks. And basically he was just destroying everyone, supposedly Kipchoge on his first long run back after taking a month back. And the guy who was telling me this was just saying like, you know, some of the other athletes were just getting demoralized because obviously they've been training their arse off for like four months. And then Kipchoge takes a month off and comes back and is already crushing them. So I think there's no denying that his physical talent is definitely mm -hmm. on a completely different plane to everyone else. Maybe Cam Warwar stands up there in that camp, but like certainly his discipline and everything else doesn't do him any harm either yeah do you want to just talk a little bit about the cycle i mean i know it's it's quite well documented but like yeah what is kipchoge's you know typical like marathon cycle because he is that's kind of what he's famous for that just ability to prepare yeah so it's um his cycle is so obviously it's two marathons a year typically and then after his marathon he'll take about three to four weeks off and um he said, and Patrick Sang said, and the others said, he basically doesn't really run at all for those three or four weeks. And then, yeah, he just chills and um, he'll go walk around the neighborhood or whatever. And he's back with his family then. And then for about four weeks, then they enter into, so obviously that's month one. 
month two would be um, it's about four weeks of the alternate days. So one day they're still living at home at this point with their families and stuff. They'll go into Eldoret and they'll spend one hour in a gym doing these kind of step. You've probably seen the videos online doing these step aerobics type stuff where they have like light dumbbells in their hands and they're doing like little boxes. They're stepping up to doing like lunges or, you know, squats, all these different exercises. And I was asking the physio about that, like, and he was just saying, he, he thinks it's really good. Um, is for strengthening the legs basically that's the idea is that it's, it's just giving the body a bit of strength before you begin the, the proper marathon block so for a month they do exercises for an hour one day and then the other day they basically run for as long as they want Kipchoge said he runs for about an hour so it's one hour running one day one hour of exercise the next day they'll do that for about four weeks which is basically oh. preparatory phase yeah so it's not too much no. running at all no. um and they said maybe he might do, but he said the vast majority of athletes in Kipchoge, I think he doesn't run on the day, he does the exercises. But the exercises, it's almost like a circuit training, so there would be a good like aerobic kind of effect from it. Like Because Dan Vernon, the photographer who went along to those sessions, he said, like, mate, you should see the gym. Like We didn't get to go to that gym because that's not at the camp like it. Um, but he said it's just a sweat box, you know. <laughs> it's like a little thing. But they all do that. Like they all get Jogi, get Yegon, they all take part in that. Um, so that's the second month then. And then they move back to the camp then typically. You know, normally, obviously, if you're running two marathons a year, he'll have a four-month build-up. Um, but Patrick Sang said he has had, obviously, like going up to Tokyo was a 12-week build-up because the marathon he ran in April in the Netherlands for other things like the Breaking Two project, it was a seven-month build-up. But Sang was telling me normally it is a four-month build-up. And from the conversations with Sang and Kipchoge and the others who kind of are part of the group, it's a very basic uh, routine. I would say it's it's thirty k running a day for Kipchoge, so he runs between two hundred and two hundred twenty k a week. Um, he runs Mondays twenty k in the morning, ten k in the evening. The, the evening afternoon run is always like an absolute jog. The morning run is, it might be a bit steadier. They said someone always fancies it, you know, but obviously Kip Jogi, if he's done a hard session and he, if he's done the hard session, they're not going to get dragged into Hammerfest a day, a day later or a day before a hard session. So that's Monday. That's Monday. And then I'll just, I'll do the easy days first then. And then Wednesday is the same. It's 20K in the morning. 10k in the evening um and then at, that's 6 a.m and 4 p.m and then at 10 a.m to do an hour of strength exercises and was yeah it's just like mobility and strength and flexibility things like that therabands and you know walking things with therabands at the camp and um, there's no weights none of them do weights um and then friday is also 20k in the morning 10k in the evening and at 10 a.m mid-morning they do an hour of exercises Saturday, they go home to their, they do a workout in the morning and on Saturday afternoon, they go home to their family until Monday morning. Um, and then they do again, Saturday is 20K and 10K for Kipchoge. And then on Sunday, Kipchoge runs for two hours easy, which is, you know, 30K or so or something like that. Um, and then the workout days are Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Tuesday is always a track reps and they do 15 to 16 kilometers of reps. And they said that's, I mean, it's slight variations of the exact same workouts. It might be 13 by what was it, 13 by 1200 or, you know, 16 by a K or 10 by a mile or eight. The, the morning I was there was eight by a mile and 440 and then eight by 400 in uh, 63, 64. 
Thursdays is all Thursdays alternates through the cycle. One week it's a 30k long run, one week it's a 40k long run, and that goes back and forth each time. And um, the 30k is a bit faster. The morning I was there, it was 30k and 138, and it's over. It, you're talking mm. was it 8,000 foot altitude, I think. Um, 2,700 meters, I think, or 2,500 meters. The camp was at. Um, and it's over rolling hills and it's a tough, tough course. Like we were driving it and it was tough even in the car to go up and down on the bumps and stuff. Um, and he did that in 138. Um, which is, but he said his best time for that was 137, which given how good he is, isn't that fast. You know, I think that's five, I think it was 515 a mile he was running. So even accounting for altitude, he's never really utterly going to the well in training. And I suppose just to complete the week, then the Saturday is always a fart leg as well. And that might, that's typically 13 by three minutes hard, one minute easy, something like that. Or maybe they'll do four minutes hard or two minutes, but it's not, it doesn't divert much from that. And it's they basically the difference between that and the track session, because it's a very similar workout is that they stay jogging for the recoveries at the fart leg. So they'll jog easy for a minute and that allows the athletes who've been dropped to catch up. And that's obviously done on the, the roads as well. It's not done on the track. Um, and they, they said they'd be doing maybe under three minutes anyway for that kilometer when they're running a three minute hard hard effort. Um, and yeah, that's basically the cycle. It doesn't change too much throughout like the 16 weeks. And the last week they won't do the strength exercises and they might do just eight by, I think they might just do eight by 400 on the Tuesday, just as a little bit of pop in the step before mm-hmm. the marathon. But yeah, that's basically it. And uh, it's a very kind of, boring repetitive training cycle but that's what everyone kind of said to me there that there's no real you know there's no magic to it really it's just and sang has kind of figured out the the methodology and i suppose the different training paces and all and it's it's quite controlled like i did ask it Jogi, do you ever run all out like in training and he said no never like you know he's just it's, it's always kind of it's always that kind of i mean he underestimates the effort like he says 60 percent and he's He's still kind of hammering, and you can see him grimacing. You're like, oh, <laughs> buddy, get out of it. Um, but it's it, it's definitely never a hundred percent with him for sure. I think um, it's, and I think you can't be. You know, if you're doing sixteen k of reps on a Tuesday and thirty or forty k hard on a Thursday, and then a hard fart like on a on a Saturday, coupled with two hundred plus k a week, if, if you're truly going to the well in any of those workouts, it's going to leave you a bit fried, I suppose. So. Think it is always slightly within himself and i think what's mental is i mean you might know better but like has he not been doing that same build-up for the probably the past eight seven years yeah he has it's it's basically the same thing and uh mm. yeah it's i would say even typically i'd say even longer because even i was asking faith kipiegan about her training and it's, it's kind of very similar you know obviously is the best right. 1500 runner of all time and the, the only difference she does she basically trains like a marathoner early in the year, obviously not with the same quantity. She, she'd never go beyond 30 K in the long run. Um, and then as she's coming into like the track season, she wouldn't do the fire like on a Saturday. She'd just do two track workouts and obviously her track workouts are shorter, but otherwise, you know, it's the same week and it's the same Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday cycle. And yeah, kipchoge has been doing that forever, basically. So because it's been coached by Sang forever and yeah. Sang's methodologies haven't really changed like I think that much. He said, he said they've changed a bit, but nothing crazy. And um, in terms then of science, you know, Sang said none of them measure heart rate um, or lactate or anything like that. But he, they do have a he does have a monitor or something, and 
I'm not exactly sure what I think it might measure his resting pulse or things like that. Or yeah, I never know if that's like just a you know, he's just been given that through sponsors and stuff and he acts oh. like he uses it or if he actually pays attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, they, they did say that it gathers, I think it might be something along the lines of like a Fitbit or something. Yeah. And uh I don't know as it measures sleep or what exactly it measures, but basically his management were saying to me, because we we're asking him like what does anyone, you know, do anything with that data? And Kipchoge, he does write everything down in a diary, you know. Um, but he it basically the man his manager, his whatever his doctor his coach all have like access to that data like i suppose it's probably what his resting pulse is how much he's moving in a day i don't know what else it measures like but they did say that they monitor that and if if they can see he's kind of getting too close to the red line of overtraining they'll you know step back but i kind of did ask him like do you ever overtrain and he basically said yeah sometimes i do and I've, I've had to fry myself and i was like would you ever take you know and uh like a workout off or take a few days off if you did and he's like no no i, I always try to complete the training i just push through but he was like yeah some days i just have to lie down in bed all day after. <laughs> so i was like no, so i mean he's he's an absolute obsessive i suppose like when it comes to the idea of routine and discipline yeah Obviously, you've mentioned his coach, Patrick, saying a fair bit there. Like, what were your kind of first impressions of him and how he just was in and around the group outside of just the, the training itself? Yeah, Sang is great. I mean, like Kipchoge, you know, he's quiet and he, he is that way. He's a very humble, quiet guy. Like, and we're even trying to, we're even trying to get him to say, you know, do you consider yourself a pioneer? And he was like, no, no, no. And then we're like, even in distance running, would you consider yourself a distance running pioneer? Pioneer? And he was like, uh maybe maybe and it was just like the utter like total modesty in him that he'll never say he's any good or you know he'll never celebrate his victories but sang in many ways is very different to him even though they're such good friends sang is very outgoing very like charismatic very witty you know and like i was saying to him in the car i was saying to him how the tea they gave us it tasted very like the irish tea i suppose very similar to the british tea as well like and and uh and he was like yeah he was like and, and where do you think the irish tea comes from and he just looked at me smiling and i was like <laughs> it's a good point Patrick yeah it's almost certainly Kenyan tea like um but anyway uh that's a stupid aside but like he's um I'd met him a few times before and he's a very gregarious kind of guy and everyone loves him like he he has this kind of wisdom almost when he speaks and he just says and he doesn't like suffer fools either like you know in terms of the the other guy who was there was trying to get him to do a short like video interview like thing for two minutes and he said I'm going to ask you these questions and so these two questions are what I'm going to ask him. He's like, you understand? And he's like, yes, yes. And he's like, so it's going to be this question first and this question then. He's like, so you understand? And, uh, and Patrick just looks at him and said, my friend, if I tell you I understand the first time, it means I understand. And you don't need to say it again. <laughs> he was, uh, but he's very much like that. You know, if, if, you, if you act a fool around him, he'll cut you down the sides very quickly. But he's the most likable guy you'd meet. And like he's, he's renowned that, you know, if, if athletes want to come in and join the group and join the workout, they are allowed. Like, you know, because there's probably only, there was about 40 athletes doing the track session, but only about 20 of them were staying at the camp. And Patrick says, like, it's like community service. They consider it, you know, in terms of letting other athletes from the area join the camp, but the rule is always, you know, get in the back and stay out of the way. Or even if you're good enough to be up the front, you know, you can be, but 
God Almighty, do not like trip anyone up. Like, because the track is so uneven, like it's it's a cinder track. And I think it's about one or two meters higher on one side. So one of the bends is literally running slightly uphill and one of the bends running slightly downhill. And when you're running at like 63, 64 second, 400 meter pace, we ran around with the journalists. We lashed the 400 for fun and raced each other. Like, and it's actually hard at that pace to stay balanced, you know, Um so you'd often see a lot of the athletes kind of tripping over and knocking heels with each other and all. So that's obviously the cardinal sin if you're if you're one of these interlopers, like do not hit any of the athletes or do not get in their way. Um, but Sang said, yeah, like he, he is kind of, he does have that hard-ass element coach to him at the same time beyond the the lovable, nice guy he is on the outside because like, as he said, if, if athletes come in and try to be a hero and hammer the long run up front trying to prove a point he'll like cut them down to size very quickly and be like you know get rid of your ego here buddy like because this isn't about showing off and stuff and I noticed that with Kipchoge as well like you know he was hurting through the track session but like say on the the last rep the last 400 meter rep after like 16 reps that they'd done eight by a mile eight by 400 he didn't um he didn't hammer it like he let two other two or three other guys drop him and you could see in his face he was very relaxed but he just said you know I don't need to finish up the front here with this guy who's hammering like I'm I'm Elliot Kipchoge like and I think there's there's definitely a lesson in that because a lot of the best athletes in the training group would refuse to be dropped by inferior athletes like but he was obviously like I'm just back training two weeks off you go buddy like I'm just gonna finish my finish my last rep at 63 64 while while you go on run 61. Yeah, like, what's Sang like? He's there, they're yeah. doing these 400s. Is he animated on the side of the track or is he just, because he just stand there, take notes? Hey, he's he's kind of chilled. He just stands there, really, I'd say, yeah. He was, like, because they have other, he has an assistant coach as well who kind of, I guess they say, like, runs the workout. And um, he's the one with the stopwatch and writing it all down, like, and Sang just kind of rocks up in his mercedes or whatever it was just like a minute before the track <laughs> session starts and just stands there says hello to everyone and he talks to all the athletes before the track work and before each run so before the long run sang is there and they go off in waves like there might be 60 athletes and it might be like seven or eight per group going at a certain pace and sang will give them all like an individual talk for two minutes before they start run and then they give everyone a group talk and it's all in Swahili, like, um, but you can see like 50 athletes will be standing around just like hanging on his every word. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, during the track session, he's not shouting at him crazy, but he will be like encouraging, you know, he'll step in and just be like, yeah, good job, Philemon or whatever, you know. Um, and, but yeah, he doesn't say too much, but he is definitely, you can see him, he's watching every group. He's obviously watching Kip Jogi's group more than any other, but he's, uh, he's taking a lot in and, you know, he, like the physio was telling me that sometimes Patrick will come to him and just say like, oh, this this athlete looked a bit, there's something in his stride, might be a bit off, can you check out his hip? And the athlete himself might have been like in denial and not have told the physio about it. And then the physio would be like, here, get over here, like, and we'll have a look at this leg and stuff. Like, but he, so he's very, very observant, like, and very, very wise, but he's, I think... It's a combination, his coaching, I would say, of like he's got all the qualifications, like in terms of he did all the IWF level five stuff back in the 90s. And then his own career um, in the 90s, obviously, he's an Olympic silver medalist as well, coupled with the last 20, 25 years, I suppose, of, of coaching high level athletes to the point where he definitely has it kind of very well figured out. And I think that the Breaking Two documentary showed that where the Nike physiologist came to the camp and had all their 
heart rate monitors and everything ready and they kind of realized oh, actually they're already running at the right thresholds and they're doing the right volume at the certain thresholds like so um, it was, was validation of his methods one thing actually one small point there i forgot to mention earlier on the recoveries like because i think us in britain or ireland or europe or the us like we're all used to being told all our lives that you know if you're doing a track session always jog the recoveries and I noticed like they were walking. So they finished their reps and then they have to walk maybe two to 300 meters before they start again. And they walked like three quarters of the recovery, I would say, or more. And then they started a really gentle jog at the end. And I was kind of asking Sang about that, just saying like, you know, is that normal? Like, do they always walk between the reps and the track session? And he just said like, yeah, he was like, recovery is recovery. And he was like, you can do what you want. I don't care. And I was like, that's interesting. He was like, why did it not jog and you know and he said no it's well he said part of the reason they walk is to let the slower athletes finish because obviously if they're jogging and someone's 10 seconds slower on the mile rep they're going to be like hanging to get back but he said a group from china chinese marathoners came over before and they i guess would probably be like us if we went there would be yeah. like you know eight by a mile and we have to jog in between because that's what you're supposed to do and patrick had just said to them like you know look do it the way we're doing it, you know, run it at this pace. But the the, mar the Chinese marathoners were like adamant we had to do it at this pace. And then he said they all and jogged the recoveries. And he said they lasted like three reps and then they blew up. And, and then he was just like, <laughs> see, it's, it's different in Kenya, my friends. Like, you know, yeah. you're up at altitude and all that. But yeah, it was, I, I, I suppose I didn't really understand why, but the answer to that physiologically, but it, it did seem that when they did do a track session, they always walked the recoveries. And again, the, the recoveries are very much loose. You know, I think we're very strict. If it's 60 seconds, it's 60 seconds. But like they told me then, they told me there that the recovery between the 400s was like a minute. And it was supposed to be a minute the whole way through from what they were telling me. Like, But like the, between the miles they were taking, I was timing them like and the other American guy was timing them. They were taking like two minutes, two minutes, 10 the quickest might be 130 or something like it was typically around two minutes. Like, and then for the 400s, they basically just turned around and jogged around the area and got the group together. And sometimes it might be 30 seconds recovery. Sometimes it might be 50 seconds recovery, but I think that's the kind of thing in Kenya, you know, no one's really sweating it. Like, you know, it's not the, mm. it's not the game changer. Whereas I think us in the kind of more Western world think, Oh, it has to be, it has to be this. And how else will I know if I'm getting better than if it's not the same thing every week, you know? Mm. Sorry, I'm just going to grab my charger here before this dies and put it in. Oh, top man. Yeah, well, I think we we do. We worry about the the unimportant things, don't we? <laughs> so they just they just focus on the focus on the pace. Yeah, exactly. And I think we also um like they it's almost more the yeah the effort I suppose as well as the big thing because like when you look at those long runs, you know, and I was asking them about the long runs at the at that they do around the area. They were saying that um like. Obviously, the long runs aren't super quick, but the physio there was telling me, and he's a 217 marathoner from Spain as well, who works with them. And he was just saying, like, the first thing you have to ask when someone tells you about what long run they've done or if they have it up on Strad or whatever around Kenya is, which course do they do it on? They said some of the coaches and marathoners would be very sly up in Eten or Eldoret or wherever, and they'll get them to run on really flat courses or obviously on the road, on the asphalt roads. I mean, not the kind of clay roads, which are obviously a bit softer and and um, because of that, they might clock brilliant times. Like, but the course they typically use is, you know, it's loaded with rolling hills, and it's probably at least ninety percent of their running is done on the kind of dirt surface. Like, and it, it's funny that as the economy improves, 
they were saying and the government is starting to pave more roads around the area it's actually like a drawback for the runners because they love running on the softer surface the red clay like which is lovely and it's, it wouldn't be as quick as the asphalt um but probably definitely a bit more beneficial for protecting the legs and things like that so the run the long run i followed the 30k run that was probably 90 95 percent on the red clay roads and just big sections of it were on the asphalt but he did the one of the lads was telling me there that as as they get closer to the marathon they start picking roads that are more on asphalt for their long run just so the legs are getting used to it and it was interesting on the long run as well they don't um the 30k they don't drink at all i think on the 30k but then the 40k they use it as like a trial for the marathon right so kipchoge was saying he would have about 500 mils of the kind of morton drink throughout that 40k run and it's kind of handed to him from a truck and mm. some of the more inferior athletes because it's obviously one truck or two trucks they're handing them out the, the worst athletes might get one or two drinks at best during their long run but kipchoge's getting five anyway um and yeah it's funny as well that they don't eat breakfast i mean it's probably par for the course there but they, their their morning run is normally 6 a.m and none of them I eat breakfast run. really before it and they ba- Kipchoge said he basically never eats before that morning run. They said some of them might have like a energy drink or a banana or something. But yeah, Kipchoge was saying like he never, before a 6 a.m. run, he never, never eats like, which is kind of interesting when you're, when you're hammering 515 miles for 20 plus miles of altitude. That is just supreme conditioning. It's like something crazy about Kipchoge. It's almost like half of him is almost this really basic stripped down version of training. And then the other half is this supreme nutrition and um, all, all the drinks. And, and and like you say, like when Nike did the testing, they're, they're doing this perfect physiological running, but just managed to get it from, a, I guess, a, an organic setting rather than through, through the lab. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well on the nutrition point, it's funny, like, but even just on the like how basic it was there were t- like he does that strength program now twice a week but that's very basic like we took part in that it's it's pretty easy like you know and it's not it, it, it's difficult but the idea was they were like we don't want to add weights in in terms of because we're not 100 percent convinced the weights are going to make them faster and we want to just supplement to give the body a bit of balance to not leave them tired or not leave them heavy given they're running over 200k a week but they were telling me like four years ago even when Kipchoge was running like winning like the london marathon and winning in rio the start his his only form of strength training basically was like um he'd do a few sit-ups and press-ups in that kind of early part before he started his marathon cycle and it was just running all the way so and i think the whole nike break into the first project brought in a bit of more of that where they kind of said look you could probably do a little bit of this exercise and maybe it'd stop but kipchoge very lucky in that sense that he never gets injured um and never really has got injured like um but in terms of nutrition then as well, they said like the nutritionist did come in like, I think for that Nike project as well and kind of lived with the athletes for a week or whatever and watched them and saw what they were consuming and measured it all. And they said protein intake was the one kind of big change they made that they, they weren't consuming enough protein. And I think that's just a product of the economy in Kenya where so many athletes are used to growing up not being able to afford to eat meat more than maybe once a week that that's just a kind of standard done thing is maybe eating meat just once or twice a week. But I think the nutritionists realized then that we're like, oh, they, they weren't eating enough protein. Um, and they said like, even they noticed the bread that they were eating, like they were buying bread at a local market, and, but it was really like poor quality, you know, flour or whatever like that. Um, and they said, 
they said that, so they tried to start getting them to eat brown bread. And, but when they put brown bread and white bread on the table, Patrick Sang was saying like that none of the athletes would touch the brown bread, all the white bread had disappeared. So they were like, shit, we need to do something different here. So they started baking, they came up with a recipe for fortified homemade bread. And it's basically the nutritional content of brown bread, but it looks like white bread. So the athletes will actually not turn their noses <laughs> up at it. So that's the bread they make. And Kipchoge himself takes part in that. And we're watching them like, you know, the, they have a gardener um, at the clinic or at the camp and they have, they have one other worker. They have a chef as well who cooks the meals. But apart from that, like in terms of cleaning up the living room or sort of baking the bread, like it's all the athletes who do that stuff. Like and it's just on a, on a rota. You get a different job to do each week. So one of the weeks, Kipchoge was on the bread making duty. So they were throwing like 20 loaves into the oven and that like. So, yeah, it was interesting. It's mental. I don't know, I don't know what other sport you'd find, you know, the best best athlete in the world cleaning up and and making his own bread <laughs> yeah it's great and even like i was asking because he's only got his own room in the last like year or two i think if joggy like yeah, room until, well. when i interviewed him like two or three about three years ago i interviewed him he was, he'd won everything by that point as well he was still sharing a room with a training partner a tiny room and they just said like in the last couple of years he's actually has got his own room but it's so basic like the camp is very small you know and there's just a couple of gardens there's one kind of set of male dorms one set of female dorms there's a tiny living room a tiny gym um and that's basically it yeah it's uh you know despite all the millions that are obviously behind Kipchoge and all it's it's a very very basic life for five days of the week for eight months of the year but that was something which stood out for me in the article you wrote as well and you know when you spoke to Kipchoge and sang they didn't want to change it. They didn't want to improve facilities. They don't, they don't want to improve their gym facilities or, you know, maybe add a few more treadmills for when it rains, do they? They have no interest in doing that. No. And yeah, that's just what he said. He was just like, look, if you've succeeded from a small gym, why would you change it? And they have added little tweaks now, like the people who've been going there for four or five years with like the photographer, Dan would say to me that there's a lot of kind of little new bits have started popping up, but it's, it's very much the same thing. Like it's just a little bit nicer than it was before, but it's, yeah, I mean, their their form of a gym was basically it's one treadmill, one exercise bike. I think there was a Swiss ball or something in there. And I think I think they only put in the bike because Ken Warwar was crocked there with his, yeah. <laughs> his motorcycle accident. Um, and then, like, they do their gym exercises. Like, there's not enough room for them all to do their gym exercises. You'd only fit, like, two people in their gym max. And uh, they have a physio room as well. Like, and the athletes typically get rubbed downs, like, twice a week. Um, and they have a physio, Peter, who kind of has worked with everyone for, like, forever he's worked with Kipchoge for 18 19 years he comes he's based in Nairobi but he comes when they're in camp he comes on a Monday and leaves on a Friday like and sees everyone's troubles like so I think it's it, it is low tech but yeah it's like you said Oliver like it's the it's the combination of low tech and high tech whereby it's it's still distance running and it's still that kind of there's there's no real trick to it really it's just getting the miles in repeatedly week after week year after bloody year <laughs> you can deal with the monotony and the tiredness of it all yeah wow on on like on like the training partners and the group then is there anyone um anyone we should look out for have you got any got any insights there is there's one guy i need to get his name again he's called daniel something but i just remember dan vernon was saying to me and talking to patrick that they saw this young he's pretty young and uh i, f- I forget his surname now but it's it's Daniel something, and I think he's in his early 20s and he's only been in the camp. But basically, 
Patrick and Elliot and the others have kind of said, yeah, you, you've got the goods. Like, you know, I'm sure the same way it probably was when Cam Warwar came along like 10 years ago, they were like, well, you've got, you've got what it takes. I think in this, this kid, Daniel, um, they says he's, he's got what it takes, but I think he doesn't, I don't think he's any major results really yet, but just in terms of the way he's been going and training and for the age he is and the experience he has, they were saying he's going to turn out to be very good. But yeah, I think, he was the only kind of guy, I, I suppose, I, 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 that was flagged up to me anyway as a potential future star. Because, yeah, like, it, it, you know, I think you, you can sometimes maybe read too much into the, the lifestyle of the group and forget the talent level because obviously Kipchoge and Cam Warwar and Kip Yegon are the, the super freaks with talent. And you kind of, you see a lot of the other athletes who are there and maybe they're guys running like 226 marathons or 206 marathons or 208 marathons or their girls running like two. 30 or something or 233 or something marathons and they're doing the exact same thing as Kipchoge like you know day after day the same exercises the same amount of rest the same nutrition the same mileage you know but they're they're just nowhere near as good and they'll never be as good even if they keep that up for years like so I think yeah it's it, it but again with Kipchoge I mean we were even trying to think is there anyone in athletics who's hit the top of the world 18 years apart, you know, because it's literally 2021 to 2003. And we were like, is there any, even a disc, is there a shot butter or I don't know, any event, a steeplechase or anything where someone has won beating the world 18 years apart. And it, to do it as a distance runner, especially in the marathon, where it really does grind you down, there's such a kind of high attrition rate. It's just, it's a testament to how, I suppose, ruthlessly disciplined he is. It's, it's unheard of. And were there discussions of like, do you, do you know how old he is? He's, he's, yeah, I think 37 or 30, is he 37? He's 37, I think, officially he turned the other day, or maybe it was 36, but uh, he's, uh, they, they say three to four years, like someone who knows him very, very well <laughs> years. Since he was a kid, basically, someone who knows him said he reckoned about three to four years older than his listed age, so which would make him obviously in his 40s now. Um, I suppose what we've seen from so many others wouldn't make that impossible to do what he's doing now at the age of 40 like but it just just it just makes it all the more impressive like that mm. he's still beating up on the world as a likely a 40 year old man was there a reason he doesn't get injured much uh i think well if when you, i think when you look at his mechanics you you just yeah. see like you're like oh god it's just like someone's made a running robot you know <laughs> yeah but i think yeah i don't know if they, they just said they just said the physio just said he's lucky Peter, because I, I asked him about it, he just said he's very, very lucky. But he said also, it's not only luck, he said, he's also, if you tell him to do something, he'll do it. You know, if you tell him, oh, you have a tightness here, you need to do this exercise or something, and um, he will do, he said he's like a military guy to physio, he will do everything to the letter of law. Or if the coach tells him to back off or skip a workout, he will keep told, he will 100% do it and ask no questions. Um, whereas a lot of athletes might be kind of stubborn and kind of be like, no, I'm, I'm grand and plow through it. But Kipchoge is smart. And, and even like, I just noticed one thing in terms of injuries as well is that when they were doing the track workout, they always warmed up in the opposite direction, which probably helps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they definitely were all, you know, crediting the effect of the shoes for the ability that they can, they can definitely just train that little bit harder now than they trained maybe five years ago in terms of, because their, their legs bounce back that bit quicker. Mm-hmm. On the shoes, and did you notice how how often were they wearing like the the flats and stuff, or and like for which training sessions and stuff? 
Yeah, Kipchoge said he has uh, five different uh, models that he goes through each each right. week. He says he wears the Alpha Fly, I think, for the track session. Um, he doesn't wear them. I think he wears. I've kind kind of. I haven't been a real runner of any kind for so long that I forget some of the models like that I used to know seven or eight years ago. But um, I think he wears like the structure Triax for his long run, if that's the right name. Um, and then. So it was interesting, yeah, he doesn't wear the Alpha Fly for his long one, mm. but he does wear it for his track session. And then, yeah, I forget what the other ones, I know a, a shoe guru would probably know them, but it was it was all just the standard kind of Nike models, but he does move between five different models mm. throughout the week, depending on how fast he's running. Did you get a sneak insight into, I think I saw the video of like a, a prototype, was he wearing on the Tuesday or for the it, workout? Yeah, I, I saw that all right. I didn't get any insight into that. Um, <laughs> I think I, I yeah, I, I'm obsessed enough about shoes as it is. But yeah, that guy, a guy who was there, Ben from the US, like, um, he's hugely into shoes. Um, and he just said, yeah, that's the that's the that's the Alpha Fly two basically. And it was mm. it was obviously spotted in the Boston Marathon, been trialed as well by some of the kind of the the lower level kind of Nike athletes there. Um. So yeah, he was. But it's funny, yeah. It's just like unlabeled, and Gibjogi is the only one with it. But obviously, he's he's not hiding it anyway, you know. In terms of the fact that he has this prototype that so few others in the world have, because obviously, with with our cameras snapping thousands of pictures of him at point blank range, like he was happy to throw it on and do his session. And all the athletes out there, are they all sponsored. They come under the one NN umbrella group, right? Um, but like I say, the ones who join in, are they sponsored or Kenyans are very sharing, aren't they? Yeah, they're very open, all right. Um, yeah, I suppose anyone in the camp is definitely under NN and will be running in all Nike gear, but I think yeah. some of them, I'm not exactly sure how the economics of it work, you know, in terms of who right. gets offered a place or whether the people just get a place in the camp and whether they actually get money, you know, some of the really lower level athletes. Um, but yeah, I think there there's definitely other athletes who do the track session who are completely unsponsored and just live in the area and are just trying to chase the dream. And maybe they they there's like it's not just global management as well. Yas Harmons is kind of crew. There's there's some other management athletes who kind of come in and roam in. And as Patrick kind of said, it's he considers it like community service whereby it's you know it's sorry we don't need to be we don't need to be totally exclusive and we do have this great group so why not kind of share as he said once once no one's getting in each other's way like we can all help each other mm, for sure obviously Kipchoge is he, he's massive like in terms of the media and just world impacts and kind of a chat me and Matt have been having recently is 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 he getting bigger than Bolt um or is Kipchoge bigger than Bolt now I think he definitely I think I think he's definitely bigger than Bolt amongst the distance running fraternity you know in terms of like your your person who's run, lining up to run a four-hour marathon who probably knows absolutely nothing about athletics, like for a lot a lot of those people, like or five-hour marathon, whatever it be. Because I think a lot of people, like just, yeah, a lot of people look up to him. I think, I mean, Bolt was on such a level that I, I think that's probably still an unfair comparison because I think mm. in terms of the size of his contract, the size of his social media following, I think it'll be a long time before anyone hits those numbers that Bolt hit. But he's definitely on a different level to anyone else in the world, I think, in terms of athletics now. Like, you know, and he's he's just so well known that it's crazy. Like, and yeah. But, I think when you talk about contracts, it's so hard because, like you say, someone like Chogi, he's so dedicated and so disciplined. He doesn't want that hype, he doesn't want that limelight. Um, but do you ever wonder, like, imagine if he was, you know, a Westerner 
Like, imagine if he was from from Britain or America. You know how big he he could be. Yeah. I know it's crazy, yeah, but I think his management were just saying that because we were actually talking about uh, Shikari Richardson out there, you know, and right. sort of her, I suppose, her attitude and all that. And I was kind of saying, like, you know, a, a, a bad attitude like she appears to have or the kind of Justin Gatlin. And I was kind of arguing that these characters are really good for the sport because yeah. they give you someone to kind of cheer against almost. And, and uh-huh. I was like, we need more of them. There's too many uh-huh. nice people in athletics and we need more people calling each other out and talking shit about each other. And, uh, and then the management were kind of saying like, yeah, but, you know, I think Elliot does show like that there's another way to be super, super popular and super famous. And, you know, you don't have to be that. And I was like, yeah, in full agreement. Um, like, I think he has shown that the quiet distance runner persona is still one that can kind of translate to millions across the world. Like, so, um, yeah, it's, it's strange. But at the same time, I think... <laughs> you'd worry if people read the Kipchoge story and then sort of start acting like him, you know, without his talent level, because it's just so mind-numbingly monotonous and sort of like even just the thing about celebrating how he refuses to celebrate. You're just like, that's mental. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, it was, he just, it seems he's completely again. Like I asked him years ago at the London Marathon, I was like, oh, how are you planning to celebrate when he won one of his early ones? And he just said, no, celebrations are not for me. I will not celebrate. And then, so it was always kind of, ever since then, it was kind of one that was in my mind and just talking to people who were like, might work with Kachogi a lot more than I was kind of seeing him like Dan Vernon and stuff. And the people who were working kind of inside the ropes at that Ineos 159 challenge. And they just said, yeah, that night at the, at the banquet, the after party of the 159 night, um, Kip just came along and there was obviously, everyone was getting rat arse drunk, like, you know, in terms of like, everyone Olympic champions were up on stage, like pouring champagne, spraying each other, they're all going to nightclubs. These were just the people who were like pacing, you know, yeah. um, the effort and they were all out in the clubs until like 3am in Vienna, like we saw some of them out in the town that night. And um but Kipchoge, yeah, just did his speech, supposedly, like he never drinks, so he wasn't drinking, and he just went back to the hotel early. Now, to be fair, his wife and his kids were there, um, so they, I'm assuming they were back at the hotel, but he just left the after party, you know, really early and just got an early night and went home to bed, And uh, which is just kind of like mad that you're the guy who's created all this, this whole celebration for humanity basically and for the sport, and you're just like going home to get an early night. And, and even talking to... Um, I was up in Fontremont a few weeks ago with a friend of mine, an Irish coach, Phelan Kelly, who was coaching a group of athletes. And I was in Barcelona at the time. And he kind of just said, do you want to come up for a weekend and stuff? So I said, yeah, I'm doing nothing else. So I went to, ended up in Fontremont for a few days and Bashir Abdi was up there training. And he was telling me, he obviously won the Olympic bronze medal, I think it was. Yeah. And um, he was just telling me how they were on the way back to Tokyo after the after winning that and they got the charter or didn't get a charter plane they flew him at the back of a normal plane down to Tokyo from Sapporo to make the closing ceremony mm-hmm. for to hand out the medals and he was just saying yeah that story that I had in the article about how him and Abdi and Gay were obviously flat out on their phones like responding to messages and he said Kipchoge he just put the phone down in front of him and just sat there just saying nothing like he was just like man it's like just how how could this guy do it? Like how can you even just put your phone down in an empty room because you're they're waiting like two hours or something for yeah. a transfer? And he was just saying like Bashir was even saying like you know he's like oh have you they were asking Kipchoge like have you talked to your kids and all he was like ah I'll talk to them when I get home or talk to his family he's like ah I'll 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 talk to them when I'm home and you're just like you know in terms of you can see how different he is like because what 
other guy in the world would not win Olympic gold and then be sitting in an airport for a couple hours yeah. with time to kill and not be like, right, I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm going to go on WhatsApp. Yeah. I'm going to call my family back home. I'm going to FaceTime them, whatever. But he's just that kind of, I suppose, mindfulness is probably the word where he's quite content to just, just sit and take it all in and be relaxed in the moment. And um, I was asking him about the phone thing and whether he's like, he's against technology. He was just saying, no, I was, like, I'm not against technology or anything. I just, you know, I don't rely on it. And he can't, even when I was arranged in interviews a couple of years ago, he could be quite hard to get hold of. And his manager just said, keep texting and just keep annoying him. He'll, he'll get back to you eventually. Um, because he, and he was just saying like, you know, when he does the track session, the track sessions at 9am and they'd be up obviously since 6am. Like, and he just said, yeah, say, um, I interviewed him that day, I think. And he said like, yeah, I don't, I don't look at my phone until I've like, come back from the track session, showered, had my lunch and all that. And then a couple of hours later, he might take out his phone and check what's happening in the world. Whereas I think all of us would be first thing in the morning, like we all pick up our phone while we're still in bed. And then if we finish a track session, we're probably before we've even done the cool, then we're probably picking up the phone. Never mind over lunch, like but he just puts it to the side. And then at some point he'll come back to it and check in on the world. Do you know what race he's training for now? Uh, Tokyo is yeah he's he's running I, I've kind of I asked him and I asked his management they wouldn't say much but since I've spoken to someone who is very familiar with it and he is training for Tokyo and uh, uh, supposedly anyway that's unofficial but uh, I, I've heard some a, a good estimate from someone who would have a good idea is that it's it's probably the appearance fee is probably heading towards the million dollar mark there wow. it's, it's, it's certainly Certainly way above the half million, I'd say he'd be getting to show up there. You're, you're probably talking seven or eight hundred thousand dollars, if if not rounded up to the cool million, I'd say. And you yeah. could fully understand at this stage of his career, boy. Yeah, why not? And that's that's usually is it usually February that one? I can't yeah, it's March. I think it's start of March. Oh, is it a little yeah. bit later now, yeah. Yeah. And then he said his his other goals are basically just he wants to complete the six marathon majors. So I, I would assume New York is on the agenda next autumn and then perhaps Boston the following spring. And sure then it's only a little over a year to the Paris Olympics. So I mean, may as well sign off with that. I know it's just like it's it is incredible how he can just consistently now for eight years dominate the marathon scene so well. It's it's crazy. It's just we've never seen. I mean, it's it's kind of the thing where you're just like, let's just enjoy this while we can, because you just know, having known the marathon through the '90s and 2000s, that we're, we're just not going to get this again. Like you know, whether it be Sammy Wanjiru or Hailey or even Paul Radcliffe or whoever, like none of them could do what he's done. Like so, I can't see anyone doing it again for a long time. I mean, yeah. On top of that, you've been in the sport you know for a long time you've been to you've watched a lot of races live haven't you you know major races what would, what would you reckon the best race you've ever seen live would be it might be that one because i was i was in the stadium that time when i was, I was 15 years old or so in wow. 2003 in paris and i saw wow. el garouge and versus Bekele and kipchoge that was one of the best ones and even for anyone who maybe hasn't followed the sport back then or isn't as sad as i am in terms of following it, the steeplechase at the 2003 world championships was definitely one of the best races of all time. Is uh, was it Ezekiel Kemboy against Saif Saeed Shaheen? And it was an absolute cracker with a great storyline because Shaheen had just taken the money and gone to Qatar. And it was one of the best races I've ever seen. Um, but I think on that point as well, a final one for anyone who hasn't seen it, the 20, I think it was 2010 Chicago Marathon and Sandro yeah. Angiru against Kibeti. Yeah. And I think only the last four minutes or something are up on YouTube or what. Yeah. And I, I've never been able to find the full thing, but I watched that 
on TV, I suppose, live. And it was one of the, it was just tit for tat. It was just, it was like a heavyweight slugfest. They were just throwing haymakers at each other for the last three, four, five miles. Like, and it was epic. And it literally came down to the last 300. Yeah, I, I totally agree that that 2010 Boston Marathon, the commentary as well. It's just mm. incredible, isn't it? Isn't it? And it just makes for such a good race. But, but yeah, that's any, others, any others you'd recommend me to follow up on if I haven't? Um, mine are mine are probably just a bit more recent. Like, I love watching um anything Bikili on the World Cross is always a good watch. You know, I think Edinburgh, especially. I was actually at Edinburgh, so I saw that live. Like that, that stands out for me. Um, but yeah, that 2003 steeple. I've only watched it on YouTube, but the way the race. You know, Kenboy, I think Shaheen goes off at 60-second pace, doesn't he? For the Steve. He does, yeah, first lap. He gaps the field after the first 800 by about 50, 60 metres, right? Then Kenboy sprints, doesn't he, after about three or four laps, catches back up. Kenboy must drop about a 59 on lap four or something yeah. ridiculous to catch back up. And then they both proceed to jog for yeah. the next two laps. The whole field catches up before they have like a complete dust-up at the end. Yeah, it's epic. And then the crowd goes wild because I think there's a few Spanish guys and maybe one French guy. Yeah, were catching yeah, yeah, right, yeah. lap to go and they thought these lads have a chance. And then the two boys turned on the jets with 300 to go. <laughs> and it was just epic. It is probably, yeah, that race is incredible. Like, I haven't seen a race like that ever, really, except for that one. Um, so, and yeah, because Kip Yegan was on my mind as well. 2017 world champs 1500 in london was another car because you'd semenya in there stepping up from the 50 from the 800 no one knew what she was going to do and then you had kip yegon hassan muir for the madness of the home crowd as well in there that was an absolute belter and like that was the that was the point when kip yegon won that it was like ah, she's she's the greatest like she's beaten muir on home turf she's beaten semenya stepping up she's beaten hassan it's like kip yegon is the queen of this distance i think any race where the pace gets really laid down before that before like that final kick i think always makes for a really good race so do you remember mo in 2011 when jay landnap kicked him yes that was great that, you know that it what's just, so good about oh, that oh, is yeah. knowing mo's career afterwards as well i think yeah. it's almost better looking watching it back now because it's like that was almost i think that was the race he needed to then be like right i'm gonna dominate now yeah uh, if, if it if it won that one against jay Land, i think maybe i don't know i don't know if you get the same mo farah yeah that. i agree yeah that was epic another one is 2004 olympic 1500 as well men's was yeah. incredible just for the tactic um it's because i think obviously lagat had beaten elga rouge a month a few weeks before the olympics and then they had this tactic ready that he's going to take over at 800 to go and i think from i've never actually I, I tried to one day when i was very bored find the splits for that race but every 100 meters from 800 to 100 to go uh, El Garouge ran faster 100 meter split, which is just they must have prepared it, you know. It's um, yeah. there's, a, it, there's it, I think there's a good El Garouge documentary on YouTube where he talks through that, and yeah, talks through that increase in that pace. I can't remember what it's called, um, but there's like an hour, it's actually, like an hour it's, on yeah, it's the BBC thing they made, I think it was before the Rio Olympics or the London Olympics, faster, higher, stronger. It's called, yeah, yeah, and it's like it's, I think it's on the great milers of the Olympics and stuff. And there's about a 10 minute segment that's absolutely brilliantly made. And yeah, it's on El Garouge. I actually met El Garouge at a thing. I was covering a race in Morocco. And uh, that was the question I really wanted to ask him, but I didn't have the balls in the end. Because um, we, we ended up at dinner together with like six people at a table. And they were kind of mixing between talking French, which I don't speak and talking English and stuff. So 
I ended up just asking about cross country, but I really wanted to, if I ever get the opportunity again, I'm going like, I'm going to ask him like, how, how did you prepare for that race? Like in terms of, because that more just to, to, to nail that split and that tactic to be able to beat Legate must have been rehearsed so many times in training to get those splits. So perfectly accelerating every hundred. Yeah. He reminds me, I mean, Jakob reminds me a little bit of how, a little bit of how El Garouge runs. Now I think Jakob's quite similar, but I mean, I don't know why, but we're talking about El Garouche. Drugs has kind of popped into my mind. But, uh, <laughs> of course, yeah, that's, that's a but, very inevitable yeah. line to draw there. But, um, but like, was there any, you know, was there any talk of, um, you know, drugs or like what, what was the, the theme at the camp? Like, because it sounds like they're completely against it. And I, I almost don't get suspicious because when you hear, you know, when you've just told us the training Kipchoge puts in, the lifestyle he lives, you know, it's hard not to think, well, yeah, I mean, someone who lives like that, he is going to be beating people by, you know, two or three minutes over the course of a marathon, you know? But I just wondered if it, if they had an opinion on it or discussed it at any point. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't, like, brought up at any point, but I no. suppose I brought I brought it up when I was interviewing Kipchoge and just said, mm. like, you know, what, what what do you think of the sort of the whole raft of positives that have been in Kenya? Like, cause it's, it's obviously been a crazy number the last five years. And they kind of went back know, to the... They must, know other, they must know athletes who have you know been done for drugs you know high profile athletes like kip rob and stuff he must have known yeah i know and he kind of just he, he takes a kind of a, a stereotype i suppose he or a metaphor he goes for always it's just that in every garden you have weeds and flowers and there's a certain amount of weeds in sport and i want to make people focus on the flowers and stuff in terms of kenyan athletics and all and and yeah, I suppose, I suppose in terms of the other questions, like I had asked him before what he thought of it. He, he just said, doping is the worst thing ever. You cheat yourself, you cheat everyone else, you know, and you, you won't sleep well if you if you don't do this sport the right way and stuff. And um, I suppose that, like, I mean, I figured there's no point asking him, do you take drugs? Like, <laughs> But I said I'd ask in terms of obviously the way doping has gone and we've seen it in cycling or wherever else in recent years that it's, uh, in Kenya, I suppose, traditionally, it was very unsophisticated doping. It was just EPO and steroids, and that's why it was so easily detectable once they did start testing in the last four or five years that they caught so many people. Um, but I think in a lot of other areas of the world, and obviously people who have proper money, it's more hard to catch. And it might even be legal ways like thyroid or asthma meds and things like that that are kind of manipulating your power to weight ratio and stuff like that. And that, that's kind of why I just, when I asked them directly about that, I just kind of said, do you take any supplements? And, he gave me the same answer he'd given me two or three years ago when I answered that question. He just said nothing. And I just said nothing at all. And he said, no, nothing. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, and again, I suppose after that, it's kind of whether or not, I suppose you want to believe it or not. Um, in terms of Kipchoge, in terms of what I've seen or heard, like I, I know a few people like who are based in Kenya and over the years when people like Kip Rop or Wilson Kipsang are two examples that come to mind. They're probably the two most high-profile male athletes to get caught. I'd heard stories about both of them, like, you know, years, months or years before they got caught oh, really? doping like that. I don't know, one of them was going to, a, was renowned to go to a certain pharmacy that was renowned in itself and then the other, you know, a story about the other and stuff. Anyway, it's, but so my, I, I guess the point I'm making is that when a lot of athletes test positive, and you've kind of been around here in the whispers, you're often not that surprised. Um, and there's often obviously other athletes who haven't got caught, who I've heard whispers about. 
but I've never heard a whisper about Kipchoge, like, you know, even knowing yeah. people, knowing runners who are in Kenya and managers who work in Kenya, managers who hear stuff about all different types of groups and all different kinds of athletes. And if they're out there, I certainly haven't heard them yet. And for that reason, the only reason I see to doubt Kipchoge is because of how fast he's running. Um, and I think that's kind of a really unfair metric to use to assume someone's dirty. You know, I think... I think if we're going into a bit of nuance, we need a bit more than that. We need some sort of link to a, a doping doctor or to a dodgy coach or to have heard a story that he visits, you know, or does something or someone saw something. But with Kipchoge, like he's at the level of fame where it would be very hard to do it and get away with it um, or, or to do it and not have something leak out somewhere. Like there's so many athletes who come in and out of that training camp, in and out of that group. And obviously you could be keeping it to just him and the doctor if it was happening, but I certainly never saw any reason to doubt him either in my time there or in my kind of years, kind of, I suppose, having the antenna tuned to the sport. Mm. For sure. Now it's interesting. I think he doesn't, he's not someone who screams doping apart from his times, like you say. So, um, and, and if we start looking at the sport like that, we're kind of, I think we'll all lose, lose our love for it. If it's, if it's just about how fast people are running. Um, yeah and I think there can be an element as well sometimes in the kind of attitude the Kenyan athletes whereby like I think you know I think I had a paragraph written in the article I was going to do that was like you know because in the 90s everyone kind of looked at the Kenyan athletes and kind of as this collective and we're like oh they're such natural runners and it's all so natural and stuff and obviously there's loads of people taking drugs there and the Kenyans were joining in on that to an extent as well and then I think in the last three or four years it's almost gone the other way whereby so many Kenyans tested positive, but a lot of people in Britain or Ireland now that you talk to are like, oh, Kenyans, they're all they're all taking drugs and stuff. And it's like kind of looking at them as a collective is such an unfair thing to do when yeah. you're yeah. when when you kind of know some of the people involved because those stories you hear about people doping, they're generally from the same groups and the same managers and things like that. Um and it's kind of low level racism really as well, because it's just that far away fields are kind of dirtier you know and it's like and it, you know it's like if if a British athlete like we've had Irish athletes test positive for EPO and we had a few Irish athletes take EPO and stuff or test positive and you know you could easily be sitting out there in Kenya and Ireland has so few good athletes that you could say oh well everyone in Ireland must be taking EPO like and not actually seeing the nuance of this guy was training with this person and this person was there or whatever um, and I think that needs to happen as well with Kenya whereby it's like there's a lot of different groups who go about things in very different ways out there and I think just because as Bill Kiprop and Wilson Kipsang were doping doesn't necessarily mean Eli Kipchoge is. Yeah well I agree with that and we don't really know the demographic of Kenya like most of us have never been do you know what I mean you've been but you know it's probably a bit like someone, like you said, someone in Ireland and assuming the whole of Irish athletics is is doping. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I think even with Americans as well, we probably can do that as well a bit. Like, but I think yeah. Americans are so exposed to us through the media that we can see the differences geographically and with the training groups and all that. Like, and mm. but yeah, I think guilt by association. If if we fully went down that path in athletics sometimes it's justified obviously when someone has a whole host of dodgy links but when it's you know there's so many athletes who they might train with a hundred different athletes in the year like and if we're gonna exactly. if we're gonna call everyone guilty by association then there'll be an awful awful lot of guilty people in the sport who've done nothing wrong yeah i, I just want to finish on um 
you know, you do a great job of covering the sport, but what do you think the sport could do better coverage wise, you know, to really sort of boost his profile out a bit more again? Because I think what you've done with Kipchoge is huge. And, you know, imagine if we had that with various other athletes and, you know what I mean? So there was a constant sort of news feed from our sport throughout the whole year, not just at the global championships. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough one. I'm not even sure how yeah. exactly you do it. Um, but the Kipchoge thing was definitely uplifting to see the response to it. And there was people who were in, interested in like Irish sports who have zero interest in running, who were texting me about it. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think that, that definitely showed that our sport does have the capacity to inspire and entertain people, even though a lot of people, you know, and even the, the way the BBC was going with the sort of cutting down on Olympic sports coverage or, you know, not having not committing to covering it properly in the next few years and stuff is kind of troubling to hear. Um, but I, I don't know the yeah, it's just the million dollar question really, isn't it? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to know. I think definitely the more, the more the public can get to know the stories of the athletes who are up front, the better it's going to be. And good commentators, good broadcasters, like, you know, the likes of Steve Cram and Tim Hutchings do such a great job when they're on, on there of telling us, you know, the difference between Timothy Chariot and Elijah Manningoy and things like that, or Beatrice Chepkoish or whoever else, you know. Um, and I think the more we can do that, the better it would be. Um, and yeah, I think it's hard though, you know, you know, it's like, I think every sport like athletics is sort of getting squeezed by the kind of ubiquity of online media and stuff whereby, you know, your gymnastics, your swimming, your boxing, not so much your boxing, but your gymnastics, your swimming, whatever, you're, they're all getting pushed out more as that kind of football swamps the coverage more and more and stuff. And uh, it's it's kind of infuriating because sometimes you look at the stories in football and you're just like, you know, they're yeah, like Ronaldo's never going to invite you to the camp or whatever, or yeah. allow that sort of access or talk with real openness and a lot of the kind of interviews with it's the same in Ireland with Gaelic football mm. here like which is obviously just an Irish sport and uh but the, the, they're mega stars and it just gets page after page of coverage every week and it's kind of it can be frustrating because you're just like you know the Irish athletes are you know winning European medals and stuff and competing in the top eight in the world some of them like and you're just like people don't really know who they are as much as some guy who's doing well in the domestic sports so I, I honestly I know I haven't answered the question at all but I think the more we tell the stories I suppose of the athletes the better chance we have but in the in an, and I think as well free to air tv is absolutely critical you know in terms of getting the sport and and also getting people into the seats even if there's a more creative way to get them into the seats like I remember being at the Stockholm Diamond League a couple of years ago and they had a concert outside the thing a family festival where they were painting kids faces and they had like the Swedish Justin Bieber version of Justin Bieber performing and I remember talking to the organizer and they said they got they doubled the attendances at the Diamond League in a, in a couple of years by starting that festival because parents went to the festival at the stadium they had right. kids races on the track the kids got a free t-shirt and then it was only you know 15 or 20 euro or something equivalent to go into the diamond leagues so they're like let's go to the diamond league it'll be a good show and it's on right there so i think we almost have to like have something shiny in yeah. the window to drag people towards our sport and then sort of get them invested that way and i think things like that like kids races and kids festivals or something like that and because it's it should be such an easy thing to solve you know given so many people run but there is that disconnect whereby 
you know, your average park runner might not even recognize Paula Radcliffe now, you know, in terms of the majority, which is just like crazy because you're like, what other, what footballer, or what person who plays tennis on the weekend would not re- recognize Nadal or Federer, you know? So, but it's, it's, I suppose, forging that connection more than it already exists somehow, but I've no idea how that is. Yeah. I think it's doing what you're doing. Your, your coverage in, you know, shout out your Twitter handle because, um, you know, if, if, People aren't following you on Twitter. They, they definitely should be. <laughs> you can see my angry rants. Um, <laughs> my Twitter handle is at Cahill underscore Dennehy. And I know no one will know how to spell Cahill. So it's C-A-T-H-A-L underscore D-E-N-N-E-H-Y. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stick it when we uh, release the podcast as well. I'll stick it on the info. But, um, but mate, absolute pleasure having you. And uh, thanks for that. Yeah, as soon as I saw the article, I was like, I just want to sit the guy down in a pub and have a chat all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Hopefully I'll do some other trip down the line. You can have me on again. I'd love to. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to chat, Jens. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, if you did, please leave us a rating review as it really helps us out. Just want to thank you guys for the reviews recently. It's been great to get some good feedback. And yeah, if you've got some nice things to say, please, please keep doing it. Um, just on sports shoes, I told you we got a discount code at the start. So the discount code this week is SUNDAYPLOD10. That's all in capitals. Sunday plod 10 and that'll get you 10% off and free delivery on sports shoes if you want running shoes or gear or anything like that so please use that that helps out as well um, and hope you guys appreciate it next week obviously we've got Liverpool cross challenge um, so our guest is Charlotte Arter so hopefully Charlotte's gonna have a good run at Liverpool um, we're looking forward to seeing how she goes and then you can guys can listen to her thoughts a week out of the race um, and see what sort of things she's thinking about going into the European trials see you next week